Well, my wife Brittany and I got engaged 18 years ago, right around this time of year. And if you're thinking, oh, Valentine's Day is close, did he get engaged on Valentine's Day? No, I did not ask Brittany to marry me on Valentine's Day because she was very specific. That's too sentimental and cheesy for me. Do not ask me to marry you on Valentine's Day. So I asked her the day after. Um, <laughs> I actually don't know if I did. It was sometime around this time of year, but I specifically know it wasn't Valentine's Day. And as we were doing premarital counseling 18 years ago, uh, the premarital counselor warned Brittany that my lack of follow-through and finishing tasks would continue to be annoying to her throughout our marriage. Okay? And he warned me about some things about her too, but I, I've long forgotten those because she's changed. Now, here, here's the reality. Here's the, the thing that we all know, that we all have things that, that we would like to change about ourselves and other people would probably like to change those things about us. I am terrible at follow-through and finishing tasks. And our premarital counselor said, Andrew will always be more of a starter. He loves to get things started. He loves the energy, the enthusiasm of the beginnings. And he struggles with follow-through and finishing tasks. And 18 years later in our marriage, in my life, in my soul, this is still true. And, and I wrestle with this, right? It's like, do I just accept that reality about who I am, that I'm a better starter, that I like the beginning, I like the enthusiasm, and I'm not good at finishing things? Or, or do I have to change? Has God wired me to be more of a starter and other people to come along and support me as more of a finisher? I don't know exactly. I'm still wrestling with that, but this is a tension that we all live with, right? There's things about us, our, our wiring, our wounding, our makeup, whether it's God-given, whether it's sin-induced, I don't exactly know, but there's things about us that we're just like, should I accept this about me? Should you accept this about me? Like, Brittany, just get over it. I'm never going to finish the project. Deal with it. Or, or do I need to repent of that and change? And there's this tension that we experience with accepting who we are, how we are, and then wanting to change and desiring to change. And so this next month or so, as we go through this sermon series, this and that, embracing the tensions of life and faith, we're looking at different things in life and scripture that seem to contradict. They seem to compete with one another. And yet we're like, maybe it's a both and. Maybe there's some acceptance of, oh, that's who I am. That's how I am. That's how God wired me. But also, I don't want to just sit in that and be like, I'm never going to finish a project because that's who I am. That's how I am, right? And so today, our tension that we're looking at is this tension between acceptance and repentance. Acceptance and repentance. These are two words that are used in the Bible, and we're going to look into that today. And as we do, see the tension that we feel between acceptance and repentance the ditches that we fall into, and then the this and the that that we need to embrace. To get started, let's talk about the tensions that we feel related to acceptance and repentance. There's the cultural tension. You've probably felt this on one side or the other. Right? Like this, this cultural value, these signs. Just yesterday, all around my neighborhood in St. Louis Park, all are welcome here signs. And I'm like, man, that's so compelling. Part of me is like, we should put one of those signs up in the churchyard, and there's reasons why we don't, and maybe some of that will become more clear as we go, but right, this, this idea that, man, all are welcome here. Acceptance, come. And, and then there's this other cultural tension that we feel, repent or perish, right? This is actually taken from a protest that happened in Portland a couple of years ago that some street preacher and some people were protesting something and write the sign, repent or perish. We feel these tensions. 
And oftentimes, it's, you know, culture will be like, yeah, the church is really unaccepting, really judgmental. These signs, this message, repent or perish, when, when therefore the culture at large is much more accepting, much more loving, much more welcoming than the church. That's a tension we feel, this cultural tension, but we also feel this biblical tension. Right? The book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 7, and all of chapter 14, actually, chapter 14 starts with this call to accept one another. Chapter 15, verse 7, it says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. If you're looking at an ESV, it's going to say, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And this, the Greek word can be translated to welcome or accept. It means take another to yourself. And there's not a whole lot of qualifiers. Actually, in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, when it says, accept one another, it says, those of weaker faith, welcome them, accept them. And then Jesus' words in Luke chapter 13, verse 9, don't, don't worry about looking this up now. We're going to get into this in a little bit. But Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all perish. Right? So we, we feel that tension, the cultural tension, all are welcome here, accept one another. And then that sign, repent or perish, that's actually Jesus' words, repent or perish. We feel this tension, and in that tension, we often fall into two ditches. One ditch is the ditch of acceptance. And the ditch of acceptance could look like this. It, it's making ourselves and or others feel comfortable with sin and okay living without a desire to grow, change, or conform our lives to the way of Jesus. It could sound like, love is love. I was born this way. You do you, right? No, it's okay, Andrew, that you struggle with follow-through and finishing tasks. I love you, period. Don't worry about it. You were born that way. Just you do you. Is, is Brittany ever going to be fully satisfied with that? Is anyone? Like, no, I... Again, I'm not going to be the, the, the best at finishing a task. Like, that's not my wiring, and, and, and even God wired me that way. I'm, I'm a much better starter, and so that's why it takes a community. Brittany's much better at finishing a task. Yesterday, we were finishing a project in our house, and I was using a, 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 a air gun to finish some baseboard stuff, and it stopped working right at the end. There was one piece left, and I just leaned it up against the wall, and I was going to go about the day, and Brittany was like, could you just figure out how to not do that? <laughs> and I was like, yes. So I figured it out. It's done. It's nailed to the wall. Um, right? Like, so I can't, just, I can't just live in this part of me that probably isn't the best and would drive her nuts if I didn't care about it. But, but also, like, she has to accept the fact, I have to accept the fact that I'm always going to be better at starting than I am at finishing. That's just a reality. So there's, right? But the ditch of acceptance would be that our house never has a project ever done, and she would always live with resentment towards me. Right? That, that could be a ditch of acceptance, right? But then on the flip side, there's this other ditch, the ditch of repentance. It's making ourselves and or others feel uncomfortable in our skin and as though we're not welcome in community or at the table until we grow, change, or conform. There, there's, a, there's a song that came out years ago called Take Me to Church by an artist named Hooser. And he says, I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. That's, that's what a lot of people feel about the church and about Christians, I'm not going to confess my sin to you. I'm not even going to let you know me because you're going to judge me. You're going to pull out a dagger and stab me in the back. You're not safe. God's people aren't safe. God's word isn't safe. God's community isn't safe. Now, I love this line. 
I mean, actually, before this line, he says, take me to church. I'll worship like a dog at the shrine of your lies. Like, oh, man, how many people is that their experience with Christians and at churches? Not everybody. There's amazing churches and amazing Christians. But some people, like, man, this this repent or perish without context, without love, without, without the tension of acceptance, this is what it creates. I'll tell you my sins, and you can sharpen your knife. And, 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 and I want to have a conversation with Hoosier. Hooser? How do you say his name? Somebody? Hooser? Hooser? Hauser. There you go. Hauser, Hooser. <laughs> I, like, I want to have a conversation with him. I'd be like, man, you're absolutely right. That happens a lot. And I'm, I'm sorry for Christians and churches that have pulled out a dagger and stabbed you. Also, what, what I want to do is say, what we actually should do, and man, this is why sometimes, just let's not be so shallow-minded that it's like Christian music, non-Christian music, good, bad, right? This song, Take Me to Church, has caused me to like just wrestle with, what is the church? What are we doing? What does this look like? And, and when I hear his quote, I'll take you, uh, I'll tell you my sins so you can sharpen your knife, I'm like, actually, true confession, there should be a knife involved. But it's not a dagger, it's a scalpel. It's a caring, loving surgeon, people that we know, that we walk with, who are, who are willing to help us cut out our abscesses and to get the wounding out and make it time. It takes bandaging, it takes caring. It take, so like that, that's what I want to say to Hoosier, Hoser, Hauser. Like, man, and that's what I want. Like, as I, as I listen to the song, I'm like, I don't want to be the type of person who stabs other people with a dagger when they confess their sins to me. But I do, in the name of repentance and growth, say, what should we do about that? I, I want to repent, repent of my sins. I want to tell my sins to others and have them say, and, and where do you need love? Where do you need care? Where do you need healing? And so this is all just this reality, right, of the, the ditches that we fall into. We can fall into the ditch of acceptance. We can fall into the ditch of repentance. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning is to talk about the this and that that we need to embrace. So we're going to see acceptance and repentance working together in Scripture and see that they're not polar opposites that are contradicting one another, but they actually work together. It's a this and a that. We need to be people of acceptance and people of repentance, and those do not contradict they actually complement one another. And so let's start by looking at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And in context here, as you're flipping there, it's on page 809 in the Pew Bible. Jesus has uh, been baptized. He has gone out into the wilderness for 40 days. He's been tempted by Satan. He's overcome Satan with the power of God's word, his trust, his dependence on God the Father through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And his ministry is beginning. Pick it up in verse 17. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. This is Jesus' very first message on the scene. This is how Matthew captures it. As Jesus is prepared for ministry, and now he begins his earthly ministry, he begins to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This word repentance, repent, in, in Greek, it's metaneo. It means a change of mind or a change of the inner being. It means to think differently afterwards. This means a change of thinking after having an experience. A change of thinking after having an experience. And so oftentimes in the church, we think about repentance as a change of our behavior. Like, and, and I've described it this way a bunch that it's it, you're going this direction and it's a 180 and now I'm going this direction. It's it's I, I repent, I turn from 
what I'm doing, and, and I turn to something new. And actually, it supports what I talked about last week, that belief comes before behavior. Like at its core, this word repentance, it means to have a change of mind. And the change of mind will eventually, over time, lead to a change in behavior. Sometimes the change in mind leads to a change in behavior very quickly. Other times, it's a low, slow, drawn-out process. And it's different for each of us. But this is Jesus' message. He, in fact, does say repent, right? And so I don't want to fall into the ditch of acceptance. Ah, we're all okay as we are. No need to change our thinking, our actions. No, Jesus, his first message, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's a new kingdom. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciples, there's this new ethic, there's this new kingdom, there's this new community, and it operates differently than the world. It's going to contradict the cravings of your flesh. It's going to contradict what religious institutions tell you. It's going to contradict what politicians tell you. It's totally different. It's upside down. It's, it, it's countercultural and it's supernatural. And so if you want to enter into my kingdom and, and experience my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven here on earth, that's going to take repentance. It's going to take a change of perspective, a change of mind. You're going to have to see things differently and believe things differently, understand things differently, and that's going to eventually lead to a change in your being. You know, look at how repentance works out for the first disciples. It says, verse 18, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. This is their job. This is their trade. They're fishermen. They're, they're people who fish for a living. Sounds awesome. So much better than pastoring. <laughs> I love my job and I love you guys. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Oh, good play on words, Jesus. Like, I, I, I want you to live your life for something more than just exchanging fish for money. I want you to see people, to care about people and to seek people. To, to catch people and exchange them, lift them up to God's grace, for God's goodness and transformation in their lives. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So here's a great example of like instantaneous repentance. There was a change of direction, a change of life. And, and what's happening here is that the disciples, there, there's a belief in them that this Jesus guy, this rabbi who invited us to come and follow him when other rabbis haven't seen anything worthwhile in us, most of the disciples, they failed out of rabbinic school. They, they didn't have what it took either in their intellect or in their character or in their pedigree to be among the religious elites, elites of their day. They had to settle for like commoner, blue-collar work as fishermen, and it was desired for them to grow up to be Pharisees or Sadducees, the religious institution, like go to college, get a degree, get a master's degree, go on, get a PhD, become successful, become prominent, become powerful, become a teacher, and they didn't cut it. They were... They were like, man, I guess I know how to fish because my dad knew how to fish and his dad knew how to fish and his dad knew how to fish and so I'll pick up the family trade as a, as a fisherman. So they're out working as fishermen, 
Jesus, this rabbi, comes along and he invites them to come and follow him. And so they have this, this repentance, right? This change of direction, change of behavior. It's because they believe that this rabbi has something to offer them that a life of fishing for fish won't. And so immediately, and again, sometimes our repentance is immediate, but this is one step of immediate repentance, right? If you know anything about Peter, he, it wasn't like he repented and his life was better. His character was better. His manhood was better. He got it all right. No, this guy failed time and time and time and time and time again. It's one picture of this immediate repentance to, to follow Jesus. It says, and going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And so this is a picture of repentance. But tied to it is, is Jesus' acceptance, his welcome, right? Verse, verse uh, I mean, in all of this, it's Jesus calling them to himself. He's not saying, stay over there get better, clean yourself up, work out a lifestyle of repentance, show me the fruit of repentance, and then come and follow me. No, he says, come to me. You're welcome in my presence. You're welcome as my followers. You're welcome as my disciples. Come and follow me. And, and they do it. They come and follow him. That's their obedience. That's their action. That's their behavior. But again, it stems from this place of he has something to offer us that our common life can't offer us. We're going to follow him. This is how it begins. Let's go to another story. Matthew chapter 9, a couple of pages to the right. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Now, this is the calling of Matthew. He's not as much of a commoner as the fisherman. He's a little bit more um, successful, although in a shady way. He's a tax collector, which means he has a little more intellect, a little more standing with the religious powers and the political powers. He has a, he has a more privileged position in the world of the first century, a little more affluent. So it, it's not about being like a poor commoner, right? It, it's just any of us. Jesus is welcoming to come and follow him. And so this is how it works for Matthew. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. Again, not clean up your life, fix your morals, return all the money that you stole, change your behavior, and then come and follow me. He, just, he sees Matthew sitting at his tax booth, swindling people, taking advantage of people. And yes, God cares about injustice like crazy. God cares that we don't swindle people, that we don't take advantage of people, that we don't rob people, that we don't steal from people, that we don't lie and deceive. That's what Matthew is. And Jesus says, come and follow me. You swindler, you liar, you deceiver, you stealer, you who's taking advantage of people, you corrupt, unjust tax collector, come and follow me. It's first invitation. Pretty accepting, isn't it? of the humanity of this person. He says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Again, Matthew, this repentance, right? It's, a, it's an initial repentance, just like the others. It's like, okay, this guy has something better to offer me than my corrupt tax booth. 
different thought process for him. There had to be a different belief. Like he was making a good amount of money where the fishermen, it might have been like, we're struggling to make ends meet. Maybe Jesus can make us rich. I don't know. There are mixed motives in following Jesus. I don't know Matthew's mixed motives in following Jesus. His mixed motives are probably different than Peter and James and John because he had a different life situation, different life circumstances. So for him to believe that Jesus had something better to offer him was a whole different set of like internal workings and and assessing, and man, what does this rabbi have to offer me that's better than what I'm currently experiencing? Something, enough of an intrigue for him to get up and leave his tax with. It says, and he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, to go into the house of a tax collector in the first century with a religious background as a Jew, that's like seeing your pastor out at a bar on a Saturday night. What? What is he doing? In a couple Saturday nights, I'm going to be at a hardcore rock concert. We'll see how the sermon is that morning. It's going to be awesome. Right? Like this, there's some like cultural expectation and standard here. And for Jesus to go into this man's house, Matthew's house, he was looked down upon by all of the religious leaders, the religious establishment, by the good simpletons who were practicing the ways of Judaism. He basically he was like, he was corrupt with the politicians and the religious leaders, but they all looked down on him. And and Jesus goes into his house. And it's not just Matthew who's in that house. It says that there were many of these sinners, many of these tax collectors, many of these people with poor reputation who a good religious person would not or should not be associated with. And here's Jesus sitting with them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he associate with those people? Why is he accepting of them? Why is he welcoming of them? Why does he allow them into his presence? And why does he go into their homes? But when he heard it, he said, Jesus responding, those who are well have no need of a physician. Now, are there any who are really well? No. There's some people who think they're well on the surface. And Jesus just doesn't have a whole lot of time for that. He's like, whatever, you guys with your religious standards and your religious rules and your religious makeup, you think you're well, you're not going to offer my healing right now. You're not going to receive it. Like, you have to see yourself as sick in order to be in desire of healing. So he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This, this word called, right? It was in Matthew chapter 4 as well. It, it means to, to, to welcome or to invite someone in. And so repentance means change of belief, Called means to invite or to summon. And and so do you see how Jesus is doing both of these simultaneously? He's he's proclaiming this message of repentance. Change your beliefs. Change your thought patterns. Don't be conformed to the ways of the world. 
and religion. But change how you think. And remember that word repentance, it's a change after an experience. So he's like, come, experience me. I welcome you into my presence. I've called you. I've invited you into my presence. And I am also receiving your invitation into your house. Remember, Matthew has him over to his house. Jesus is like, yes, I'm going to have a relationship with you. That's the call. The call is to come near and experience. Now, I don't have time to go through Matthew chapter 14 and 15, or Romans chapter 14 and 15, but I do want to bring it up here for a moment in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For as the one who is weak in faith, welcome or accept him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Now, I encourage you later this week, read all of Romans chapter 14 into chapter 15. Uh, Again, I'm not going to go there this morning. There's a whole lot at play in that chapter, but I love how this chapter starts, and I think it fits in well with what we're seeing in Jesus here, that the Apostle Paul who had been welcomed into the presence of God, God showed up to Paul powerfully on the road to Damascus after he was murdering Christians. And God meets him powerfully, and there's this radical life change, this repentance. But again, in stages, there was some initial radical stuff that happened, and then it had to be worked out. Repentance is a process, a journey that we're all on. But what we see here is the Apostle Paul picking up on this ethic of Jesus. And he's telling the church in the first century, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome or accept them, but not to quarrel over opinions. (laughs) What? Isn't that what we do, though? Like, I I think about examples of, man, church. (laughs) Eight and a half years ago when we merged, I remember having conversations about, oh, there were a few young people who were showing up with hats on. Do we ask them to remove their hats because they're in the holiness of God, the presence of the Lord? Oh, somebody back there with a hat on. Thank you for wearing your hat. You're welcome here. (laughs) You're making my point for me. Right? Like, or coffee in the sanctuary, the the holy presence of God. Can we have coffee? And that's a fine perspective to have. If that's your perspective, if that's your opinion, if that's your preference. But a change of mind is to look at things differently, to have a change of perspective, a change of opinion, a change of... And isn't the scripture saying, doesn't it seem to be saying, well, (laughs) this is how it works out sometimes too. Those who have been around the church longer and have a little more religious, like, impulse, sometimes we think, oh, well, (laughs) the weaker ones wear hats. So maybe we should let them. I'm not saying you're weaker. (laughs) Actually, I think the more that we dig into the scriptures, the weaker faith is the person who gets stumbled up over somebody wearing a hat to church, over having coffee and say, like, we're here to worship Jesus. The one who says, come into my presence. If he welcomed Matthew into his presence, do you think he cares if we have a hat on or not? Right? This is how it works. Like he says, come to me. Come to me. As for the one who is weak, whether it's the one with the hat or the one who judges the one with the hat, I don't know. They're both welcome and accepted here. Amen. Let's go. As for the one who thinks coffee in the sanctuary is a weaker position, you're welcome here. As for the one who thinks that's a weaker position, you're welcome here. And we're going to fight this out together. Amen. This is what it means to do life together. Do not get stuck in our little 
small thinking patterns. Also, Romans 15, 7. Whew, breathe for a minute. <laughs> Romans, so 14, 1, all the way through 15, 7. Paul kind of wraps up this again. It's such a, I wish I had time to do all of these passages together. Go and read them. But he ends kind of this train thought in Romans with 15, 7. He says, therefore, welcome or accept one another as Christ has welcomed or accepted you. Like, that's not the ditch of acceptance. That's biblical acceptance. Jesus, sitting with sinners and tax collectors, willing to be associated with them, willing to welcome them into his presence, him willing to go into their presence. And then Paul, years later, is saying, just like Jesus has done for us, we ought to do for one another, accept one another, welcome one another, be with one another. Oh, and I had two quotes that I was going to read, but I forgot the books in my office. Shoot. Man, I have them in my notes here. Read this quote, read this quote, and they were long enough. Well, I'm going to skip the quotes, which is probably good for time's sake. Man, those quotes are so good. Well, they're not here, so I'm not going to read them. I'll, I'll try to figure out how to get them to you, because they really just kind of stimulate our thinking on this idea. What we're going to do is move on to the last passage for this morning. Continue to look at how Jesus accepts and calls for repentance. Look at Luke chapter 13. All right. Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 1. It's on page 872 in the Pew Bible, if you're trying to find it. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him, him being Jesus, in context here, Jesus is doing a bunch of teaching. There's a group of people listening to him teach. Some are his disciples. Some are Pharisees, Sadducees. It's a mixed group of people listening to him teach. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Oh, what an interesting verse. So Pilate is a leader in their day who apparently had had some people executed. Ruthless, a leader and ruler, had some people executed, and he mixed the blood of the executed with the sacrifices that they were making. You think America is bad. <laughs> As far as I know, this isn't happening under the watch of our governors, right? But it was in the first century. So, so this is a story that they knew about. There, there were some present who told Jesus about this thing that happened. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Their question is like this idea of Divine karma, almost. Have you heard of this horrific act? Those Galileans must have been really bad because the divine judgment, the divine karma on them was that Pilate executed them and then he took the blood of their sacrifices and mixed it with their blood. Could you imagine a worse death? Isn't, what did they do to deserve that? That's, that's their thinking. Like, whew, man, whatever they did, I'm not going to do that because God judges that really harshly. There's a lot of divine karma on 
those Galileans. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because this is how they suffered? And isn't this sometimes what we do with like natural tragedy and disaster? We're like, man, well, what did they do? Devastating earthquake in Haiti? What did they do to deserve that? Right? Pastors will stand up and say this stuff. And here's Jesus' words. Well, do you think that this select group who suffered this specific horror is worse? And he, t- he answers it. Verse 3, no, I tell you. But unless you repent, change, you will all likewise perish. So he doesn't get trapped in this conversation, but was this divine karma or divine judgment? He uses this opportunity, and, and, and this is interesting. Jesus is almost always just showing compassion, showing compassion. Here he's using this opportunity to be like, death is coming for us all. Some tragic, some horrific. Like, nobody escapes it. Whether it's at the hand of another's, whether it seems like divine karma or judgment, doesn't really matter. Death comes for all. And unless you repent, change your thinking, come and follow me, enter into my kingdom, you will all likewise perish. Likewise doesn't, he, it's not literal, right? He's not saying you're all going to be mixed with the blood of your sacrifices. He's saying death is coming. Unless you repent, you will perish. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Again, that's part of their thought. This is, this is something that happened. We don't know exactly when. This is the only mention of these two like tragedies. Apparently, a tower fell, killed 18 people, and the rumor was those 18 people must have done something to deserve that. That's divine karma. That's divine judgment. And Jesus says, no, that's life. Sometimes towers fall. Sometimes the earth splits open. Sometimes cars collide. Sometimes cancer eats away at a body. And unless you repent, unless you have a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of your inner being and enter into my kingdom, you will also likewise perish. Now, he's not saying we're going to physically live forever, but what he's saying is that there. There, there is life forever that you don't have to worry about death. You don't have to worry about perishing if you enter into my kingdom, if you repent, if you, if you join me because I give life eternal and abundant. But then it's, it's interesting, right? So there's this call right here from Jesus to repent. So hear that. We can't get into the ditch of acceptance, be like, I'm just fine as I am. Jesus is like, no, death is coming and if you haven't repented, death will lead you to death apart from me. But if you have repented, your physical death just allows you to continue living the eternal and abundant life that I'm working to give you here and now in the kingdom of God. But we're not done yet. We're going to wrap this up here. But I want to end this with the last three verses because I think it's so fascinating that Jesus now tells this parable on the back of this like call to repent and perish. And before we move on to the next part, let me remind you here that Jesus' call right here in this passage is for the religious people to repent. It's a warning to those listening to him. It's not 
the religious people going out onto the streets with a sign saying repent or perish out of the context of this passage. It's those of you who are listening, those of you who are following, those of you who are interested in what I have to teach, you better repent. Be careful about pointing out the the, the speck in their eye when you might have a log in your own eye that you need to repent of. Repent or you will likewise perish. He's, he's continually inviting us to repent, to repent, to repent. Martin Luther, as he nailed the 95 theses to the Wittenberg Chapel, the first thesis was all of life should be one of repentance, a continual turning, a continual changing of mind, a continual transformation of the inner being. Not that I've arrived, now I can point finger at the people out there and say, repent or perish, repent or perish, repent or perish. I have the answers. No, God, thank you for your acceptance. I want to be transformed. I want to be changed. So he says, unless you do likewise, unless you repent, you will all perish. But then he follows it up with this parable. Verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So much agriculture imagery in Scripture, right? We talked about trees last week bearing fruit. Fruit to root exercise. All over in the Scriptures, God is talking about fruit and trees and using this imagery. Remember John 15, the vine dresser who prunes and tends and cares for us so that we would produce good and godly fruit? Here Jesus is again using another tree imagery. It says, a man had a fig tree planted in the vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, who's the vine dresser? Think back to John 15. God. So this man comes, sees this tree. There's no fruit on the tree. He says to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Worthless tree. Cut it down. Why should it use up this ground? And he, the vine dresser, God, answered him, sir, Let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. What an amazing parable. Here's here's what I want to close this morning with. You just having your mind blown about the revelation of who God is and how God works by this parable. See, what Jesus seems to be saying here is that when other people get frustrated with your lack of fruit, with your slow-to-change behavior, isn't that what's happening here? This man comes and he's like, this tree, I'm sick of it not bearing fruit. This is year three. I'm ready to get rid of it. Sometimes other, other people lose patience with us. And they judge us. They look down on us. They're like, you're still doing that same thing six months later? Where's the fruit? Maybe you're not reading your Bible enough. Maybe you're not praying enough. Maybe you're not giving enough. Some of that may be true. I don't know. But like this picture of God, the vine dresser, and this other human being who's frustrated with the lack of fruit, who says, I'm done. I'm done waiting. There's no fruit. I can judge that this tree is ready to be cut down and removed. Or maybe 
you yourself, you're sick of the lack of fruit. And you're losing patience with yourself. Like, man, year three, year 30, the same thought pattern, the same behavior, the same fruit. God, just be done with me. I can't do it. And God steps in in this parable, the vine dresser, and he says, give me more time. The vine dresser, God, doesn't seem to be done working on the tree. Working on you and working on me. He says, let me dig. Let me throw some manure. Let me throw some dung in the Greek translation. Some fertilizer. Let me play in the soil. Let me throw some fertilizer in there. Let me water it. Let me, let me trim some things away so that some sun can get to it. Let, let's see. Let's not give up. Let's not lose hope. It's like God is practicing patience with us. Like God is continuing to tend to us, to water us, to bandage us, to support us, to, to, to believe in us. It's like God has optimistic hope about our future. He's like, let's just wait. Let's not give up. This is how God operates. This is how God works. And if God is doing this with us, if he's doing it with me, if he's doing it with you, isn't this what we ought to be doing with one another? Like, let's not cast stones too soon. Let's not chop away the tree too quickly. Yeah, I know it's year three of the same wrong belief or behavior, but maybe it needs more manure. <laughs> right? Maybe we should start manure clusters. Call those our community groups. Join a manure group. I could come up with some better names, but that's the only acceptable one here from the pulpit. Join a poop group. <laughs> so watch what God does. And, and, and God just seems to be saying, come. Come. In the church, sometimes we say, like, come as you are, but don't stay that way. It's a fine phrase, but it kind of puts pressure on us changing, right? It, it's like accepting and not accepting also at the same time. What if we were just like, come as you are and just wait and see what God does? He's going to do something. Let's be surprised together by what he does. He's an accepting God who cares so much about us that he will do change in us as he digs, as he throws manure, as he waters, as he cares for your soul and our collective soul together. As we close down this morning, just listen to this passage, this invitation from Isaiah. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. For some of us this morning, repentance might be believing that God welcomes you to the table. It might be believing that he longs for relationship with you. It might be believing that he wants you in his presence. And that might, over time, lead to life change, to behavior change. But you have to accept God's invitation, God's welcome to come. And so this morning, I want you to come to the table, two in the front here, two in the back. If you desire to walk with Jesus, his invitation for you is to come, to come and receive. Let me pray. 
God, I thank you that you don't give up on us too quickly. As your word says, that your, your love is steadfast. So Lord, if we need a little more manure in the hole, if we need a little more watering, if we need a little more tending, if we need a little more believing that we're accepted at the table and in the community in order for us to grow in repentance, Lord, whatever it is for us this morning, Lord, we're all in a different walk of life and faith. But I thank you that you accept us and welcome us as we are to your table. And I pray that we would be changed from the inside out over time by you as we keep coming and celebrating that though our sins are red light scarlet, you have made us white as snow.